Take your Bibles out, if you would, and uh, put your bookmark in 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, as Jacob's already noted, we're going to uh, just kind of continue where we were yesterday. We have visitors with us who weren't with us yesterday, so I'll give you about 10 minutes. You can read through the first two chapters, and when you're done, put your hand up, and then we'll all be ready to go. Uh, we are going to build on the things that we talked about, so I'll take a moment to try to kind of catch everybody up. Uh, I hope you had a good day. I, I, gospel meetings are, uh, they make for tiring weeks, and uh, whether you're retired or whether you're uh, working and raising kids, uh, it, we're not used to going, 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 and then going, going in the evening, and then having to stay awake when somebody preaches, and so I appreciate that you're here. I appreciate those of you that have driven some distance to be here. Uh, it's an encouragement to me. I know it's an encouragement to the church here. I hope that our study will be profitable this evening. Uh, this is a section this evening that we don't talk about a lot, uh, at, at least not in gospel meetings. I, I, rarely do I go someplace and, and somebody says, okay, we're going we're gonna to study the second half of 1 Peter chapter 2 and the first half of 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, but if we're going to study through Peter, this is a passage that we need to look at. And to be absolutely honest with you, it has a lot of applications in our day and age, and so I invite you to look at this with me. I, I want to begin by, by kind of uh, reminding you of a concept that I introduced yesterday. We talked about a little bit because I do think it not only affects how we look at this particular letter, but I, I think that uh, it, it probably was something that uh, Peter had to deal with somewhat in, in the original day. Uh, we are independent people. It, it, is, it is a part of the fabric of this nation. If you've ever traveled outside this country, you notice, and especially in certain cultures, that the idea of individual independence is, is really not very much a part of the culture. And, and it's odd to us to go other places and see people who sometimes just follow blindly what they are told to do because it is a part of our very... Uh, uh, declaration that we all have the right, inalienable rights given to us by God, uh, that, that, that we can pursue life, liberty, and, and happiness. And it's just part of being an American. And, and in many ways, that's very helpful. This independent spirit is important if we're going to embrace some of the things we talked about yesterday. If we're, if we're going to be strangers and pilgrims this world, sojourners, then we're, we're going to have to have this mindset that we're, it's okay if I'm not like everybody else. So in some ways, independence is great. In other ways, independence is, is kind of uh, opposed to some biblical concepts because uh, we don't like to be answerable to anybody, and that includes the Lord. And for, for some people, the, the fact that I think something is in their mind equal to what God says not appreciating that I'm not God, and God's not me, but I am an American. And for some reason, that, that concept uh, gets in our way. And, and that is particularly the case in the section that we're going to look at this evening. Uh, if you backed up, here's kind of what we went over yesterday. Uh, the, the context, and this is a background, you'll notice, for instance, that uh, we're going to start in chapter 2 uh, and in verse 13. The first word there is, therefore. So he's going to build on what he has just said. So Peter starts the letter by talking about the hope that we have because God has fathered us, that we are his children by his choice. We put our faith in him 
uh, and he could have made us his slaves. He could, he could have chosen any number of relationships, but instead he wants us to understand we are family we have uh, an inheritance that is ours by right as family. It is a wonderful inheritance, and it should drive us to gratitude. It should drive us to joy. It should drive us to holiness. And, and that's where Peter goes in, in the first uh, chapter. He moves from there to the idea that because we are all children of God and therefore now have a relationship with God, we have a relationship with other people who are children of God. And so he tells us to love one another fervently and talks about the obligation of growth as, as, as children that are desiring milk and, and, and the fact that we now are a part of, a, of, of the residence of God. We're a part of a spiritual house. We are a priesthood. And that, that changes our relationship to the world. And it's at this point that Peter introduces the section we want to look at this evening. Um, Particularly, I would emphasize this, these last few statements in 1 Peter chapter 2. So uh, let's begin reading, and this is a long section, so open your Bible and read along with me. Uh, let's begin reading actually in verse 9. Uh, the, the context we're going to discuss begins in verse 13, but, but the introduction to this predominantly is in verse 9, okay? You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts that war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works that they observe. Glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, but not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. What credit is it if you are beaten for your faults and you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return, when he suffered he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed." For you were like sheep going astray, but you've now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, 
with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. In this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this that you may inherit a blessing." This is not a hard section, okay? There's really nothing in here that requires and demands great explanation where we have to delve into the Greek in order to properly understand the concepts. The difficulty of this section is we don't like it. Uh, We don't like what he has to say about government. We don't like what he has to say about servitude. And especially in this day and age, we really don't like what he has to say about husbands and wives. But I want you to appreciate a, a couple of things in this section. This section addresses what happens when we become strangers and pilgrims. This section addresses what happens when we become God's children. And this is the way our family operates. This is the way God's people work. These are the values that God's people have. And, and that sets us at odds with everybody else out there. Because their views are different, their views about the culture is different, their views about the government's different, their views about uh, how the family unit works are different, their views about individuality are different. We are at odds, folks, with the world around us. And, and we need to get that in our heads. Uh, I, I think one of the great difficulties that we have is, as I said yesterday, as Christians in the United States of America, it's always been pretty easy to be godly and be a Christian because... There were so many people that were very much like us with some exceptions in regards to how we saw certain doctrinal things. But morally, culturally, socially, it, it, you didn't really have to blend in because we were kind of in the majority. It's, it's an anomaly in history, but that's the way it was. But it's not that way anymore. And the sooner we get that in our head and realize If I'm looking a lot like the world and thinking a lot like the world, I need to be a little concerned. sooner we get that in our head, the better off we are. Because the world's not setting our standards. Our Father is setting our standards. And in this section, I think what he addresses is this idea that, okay, when I became a child of God, uh, I, I was no longer amenable, I'm no longer amenable to other authority. That, that, that I became free. Now this is, it's hard for us to get this mindset in our head. We don't live in a culture, in spite of all the rigmarole that goes on, we don't live in a culture that practices and, and, and encourages slavery. We don't live in a culture where uh, husbands and wives are seen as a leader and servant uh, that we, we prize equality. We, we don't live in a culture where uh, we, we, we are completely dominated by our government and uh, you're, somebody's going to come up afterwards and they're going to, I think we're completely dominated by our government. Uh, yeah, yeah, go, go live in China for a while and then come back and make that argument, would you? Uh, we are so stinking spoiled about that stuff that we don't even see where we are. 
And, and, and so a lot of this is hard for us. I want you to think about a Christian in Peter's day uh, who's living under the, the emperorship of Rome and all of the various and sundry governmental uh, tributaries that came with that. Or think about being uh, a slave in the Roman Empire, having absolutely no rights whatsoever of your own. Or thinking of, think about being a, a wife in a culture where uh, wives were not much higher socially than slaves were. And then having one of the apostles come into your community and say, Jesus Christ is offering you the perfect law of liberty. You are free from your sins. And, and there aren't distinctions. There's neither Jew nor Greek or bond or free or male or female or slave or free. And all of a sudden, the wheels start turning and you realize that, hey, all these things that have divided us, they're wiped away. I'm not amenable anymore. And yet you still find yourself under government. Or you still find yourself a slave. Or you're still a, a woman married to a man in a very male-dominated culture. And how do you deal with that? How do you deal with this newfound freedom? And I think that's where Peter goes. And, and I think for us, there are some real challenging issues that grow out of this that we need to think through. Because I see some issues in our day and age that are very applicable here. So I'm going to take this three sections at a time. And I want you to notice two things as we go to each section. I want you to notice the emphasis that Peter puts upon good works. Okay? You go all the way back to chapter 2 where we started reading uh, that we are to be sojourners and pilgrims in verse uh, 11 and our conduct is to be honorable that when they speak against you as evildoers, they might by your good works that they observe. And, and, and then you go down to, to verse 15. Uh, this is the will of God that by doing good you put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. And then you go down to verse 20. He was talking about the, the slaves. Uh, what credit is it if you're beaten for your faults and you take a patient, but when you do good and suffer? And then you get to chapter 3, husbands and wives in verse 6. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good. So I want you to appreciate, if we don't stop and underscore this in each section... This is what God expects of us as His children. These are what God's people do. This is what my family does. We do good. And, and so maybe you ought to stop right here and ask yourself, just what kind of good are you doing? You know, it's one thing to be isolated from society, and there is some of that that we have to practice. But we cannot divorce ourselves from the world around us to where we have no influence. We're to be salt and light. Our good works are to be important in helping people come to God. This is what our family does. We find opportunities to do something good. We go do something good. And so that's, that's number one observation that goes to all three of these. And number two observation is the instruction in each circumstance is the same. Whether you want to talk about your relationship with your government, whether you want to talk about your relationship uh, to others that you are under their authority like a slave to a master... Or whether you want to talk about the relationship of husband and wife where you have one who is assigned the role of leadership and the other is to be a help that is, that, is, that is suitable. Even if you become a Christian and you are now in the perfect law of liberty and God is your ultimate authority, He still tells us to submit ourselves. Now, if you don't get anything else, that's the teaching. 
And, 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 and so let's talk a little about each one of these sections. I will try to be uh, as brief as possible uh, because this is not hard. But here's the deal. If I'm brief, pay attention to what the text says. Okay? Don't, don't think, well, he didn't give much attention to that, so that's not very important. Yeah, it is. Okay, just because we don't talk about it a lot doesn't mean you can't read it. Y'all are intelligent people. We are here to kind of remind ourselves. So, what does God say to the Christian about civil government? Well, this is the first section. And once again, each of these circumstances involves a relationship where we as Christians are set apart from the world and we're under authority. And each one of these can be abused. Government can abuse us. If you're in a role of servitude, whether it's slavery in their day or economic servitude in our day, you're, you have a job and you have a boss. Uh, that's subject to, to abuse. Authority and service is always subject to abuse. And the same is true with husband and wife. So what does he say about uh, uh, civil government? Well, this is a big one in our day and age, isn't it? Shake your head yes, okay? Uh, because you're already thinking about the next election. Whether it's your local election, whether it's the state election, whether it's the national election, buddy, Everett, we're Americans, you know. Uh, we, we're going to fight about politics. And, and, and it's been an interesting thing that's happened in our life. We are in a unique circumstance in history because as Christians, we have a say in our government. That's rarely been the case through history. It was not the case in Peter's day. They didn't have a, a say in their government. And we do, and it presents some, some difficulties for us because Christianity has always been influential in this nation's history. I understand a lot of that's being rewritten and everybody wants to say, well, you know, we, we took away all the land from the indigenous people here because it was all driven by economy. It wasn't religious freedom. Uh, there was a lot of economy. There were a lot of people came to make money, but there was religious freedom being sought as well. And the principles of Christianity are everywhere in, in the underpinnings of this country. And, and so we've always been able to participate. But what's happening is that uh, things aren't going the way we would like for them to go very often, are they? And we very often see the future of God's people as tied up with the future of the United States of America. And that's just wrong. This country may fall. Our king's still going to be sitting on his throne. And we're still going to be citizens of his kingdom. What we have to do is prepare for what happens if we're living in a culture that's very different from our own because of our country falling, because of it coming immoral. And, and we immediately start arguing. And this is the problem, is that democracy is a very convoluted process where we're driven by a lot of things. Some people are driven more than anything else by their moral convictions. My dad always used to say, oh, people are going to vote their pocketbook at the end of the day. And there's a lot of truth to that, too. And there's truth to people voting based upon what their earthly families kind of circumstances have always been and what our traditions are. And I live uh, in, outside of Beaumont, Texas, which is a, a strongly petrochemical industry-driven economy. And up until the last probably several decades, that, the, the people that worked in the petrochemical industry were union people. 
And union people were Democrats. Now, they might have extremely conservative moral values, but, buddy, they were going to vote for a Democrat. And uh, then you got other people that say, well, the party of morality is the Republican Party. And, and now you got a Christian that's saying, no, well, wait a minute, I've always done better when the Democrats are in control. And somebody else says, yeah, but the Republicans are the conservative ones. And next thing you know, Christians are fighting over one another and they not even open their Bible yet. And this is what happens when Christians get to live in a democracy. And it makes for problems. Uh, I've seen congregations not necessarily completely divide, but I've seen people leave because of what was or wasn't done in a political election year. And you've probably seen it as well. And, 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 and so we're not immune from the conflict. And I think it's getting worse. Uh, when I was young, I don't remember Christians dividing over religion. But they do now. And they do because we all bring different things to this concept. Here's the first thing I would remind you of. We are not Americans first. Christians need to get that in our heads. Those of us who are Texans, we've always gotten that, okay? Because <laughs> we're Texans first, Americans second. But the reality is, our loyalty, first, uh, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, our, our, our citizenship is in heaven. When we became children of the Father, this is where our loyalty is. And I love this country, and I want my kids to grow up, and I've got a grandkid on the way, and I want her to grow up and have all the privileges and the rights that, that I had. I want the world to be a safe place. I don't want it to be an immoral Sodom and Gomorrah for my kids and my grandkids and whoever may come after that. But if it does, it does. I belong to the king. And that has to be where our heart is, not just where our mental conviction is. So as we start thinking about government, it makes a difference. So how do you identify yourself? It's this mindset that drives God, Peter, to offer these instructions. Because you're strangers and pilgrims, because you're doing good works, because you're showing the praises of God in a Gentile world, what you need to do is submit yourself to every ordinance. You may be reading a version in verse 13 that uses the word institution. And all that means is an expression of authority, and that refers to, uh, as he goes on to say, whether you're talking about the king as the supreme rule, or whether you're talking about governors, and, and, and that would then apply to any other officer of the government. And, and, and our response to that is, yeah, but buddy, I tell you what, things are getting bad. Yeah, yeah, I, I think they're getting bad too. Uh, do you think that it's worse than it was in Rome under Nero or Domitian? No, we're, we're, not a, we're not a 42nd cousin to what things were like for these people. And yet what God's telling them is, you need to rank yourself. That's what submit means. You, you need to give yourself to whatever they are telling you to do. And, 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 and then we will pull out, yeah, but we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven and we can't obey God and obey the government at the same time. Yeah, most of the time we can, folks. I mean, there are not a lot of moral things that the government demands of us that we can't do. We may not like some things, but there are issues that we need to appreciate that God says no matter what level of government you're talking about, 
you need to submit yourself. And if you go over to Paul's version of this same teaching, which is Romans 13, Peter does not address this here, but Paul does. And, and, and he includes the idea of paying taxes. Uh, I, I, I do know some Christians that have uh, ended up in jail because they refused to pay their taxes. And, uh, hey, you know, our tax money is being used for immoral things. Yeah, you, you think the taxation under the Caesars wasn't used for immoral things? You know, when they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, you know what they did with the spoils of war from, from the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70? They went and built the Colosseum. And, and, and think of all the bloodshed that went on there. The governments have been misusing money forever. And yet Paul's instruction to the very citizens of the city of Rome in verse 7 is, Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor, owe no man anything. And, and, and as hard as this is, and as many arguments as we want to make against it, what God says is, we need to be people who submit ourselves to our government. And I recognize that if you go to verse uh, 14, that God says, here's the ideal of government. Government is intended to be uh, the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do good. And say all you want to about our government, that's still essentially what government tries to do. Is it not? I, I mean, you have local police forces, and what are they doing? They're, they're trying, to, they're trying to, to maintain order and protect and serve so that good can be done and evil's taken off the streets. And it is still the ideal. Is it corrupt? Yeah. Uh, but, but it is still what God designed government to do, and it's still what most governments are trying to do. But even if they're not, what he says is, this is the will of God, verse 15, that by doing good... You may put the silence of the silence, the ignorance of foolish men as free, not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but bond servants of God. It is our conscience to God that is to be driving us. God says, submit yourself. Now, now the next time there's a political argument, here's what you need to say, especially if it's a Christian. God tells us to submit ourselves. Yeah, but I don't like whoever the present president is. Well, that's fine. You don't have to like him. God doesn't say, adore the, the king. What God does say is submit yourself to the king. Because what can happen is, if we're not careful, we lose our influence. We become rebellious. We become the people who are the radicals, the cultists, the insurrectionists, the people with a political agenda. We become the religious right. The evangelical party. You ever hear that thrown around? And it's interesting because you know what the common thinking of the evangelical party, religious right, moral majority, you know what the common perception of that is? Oh, those people are pretty good people till it comes to something that they don't like and then they're as ungodly as everybody else. And there's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of poor attitudes in the political arena that come from conservative people. And we don't need to be those people. We need to be the people who are doing good and submitting so that people see that God's people are law-abiding, uh, 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 a peaceful loving people because they are not caught up simply in the idea that, 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 that uh, 
uh, utopia is going to be found by putting the right people in office. Will it help? Yeah, it will. I'm not saying don't vote. What I'm saying is make sure where your loyalties lie and that we are submissive. And then if you go down to verse 17, here may be the big issue where he finishes the section by saying, look, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. What all those things have in common? Uh, disposition. Attitude. I, I know a lot of people pay their taxes, but if you ask them about the current state of affairs, uh, buddy, they will drag the president, the vice president, and most of the members of the House and Senate that are on the other side of the aisle from wherever they are, they'll drag them through the mud all day long. Well, I'm going to tell you something, folks. We have no right to disrespect in our speech those who serve in our government. This is pretty clear. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. What if he's dishonorable? We're not doing it because he's deserving. We're not doing it because of who he is, or she is, or they are. We're doing it because of who we have chosen to be. And again, I offer Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say love your enemy, do good to those that, bless, that, that curse you, or bless those that curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who would misuse you, that you may be the children of your Father in heaven who makes the sun and His rain to shine on the just and the unjust. God is good because God is God, and that's the way He has chosen to be. You and I have to be people of honor and repute, doing good works, not insurrectionists, not rebellious, people who have good attitudes because of who we are. Now, is that fairly clear? And I don't think I've said anything here that Peter doesn't say. It's pretty straightforward stuff. But I'm going to tell you, I don't think things, this is my opinion, and I offer it freely as my opinion. I know you're not here to hear my opinion, but I really don't see things getting better in this country. So this is going to become more and more an issue for Christians. And we're just going to have to decide whose kingdom we really love the most. Second point. Uh, go, go to verse 18. And this is a section that we find a, a, a more difficult application to because it's obviously written to slaves. Uh, most of the modern versions use the word servant. I think there's a reason for that. This, is, this word for servant here is not the typical word for slave, which would be doulos. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I can read a, you know, a, a lexicon. Doulos is the typical word for slave, a bondservant. This is the word oikos, and, and it refers to uh, what, what you might think of as a domestic slave. A household slave, somebody that's very close to the family. Uh, when you read about stewards in the New Testament, they would often be a very trusted slave who's almost family uh, in, in his connection and, and very often placed to the responsibility of managing the household or raising the children. This, this is the person we're talking about. And the reason I think that that distinction's important is it says that there's probably a closer relationship between master and slave than there would be otherwise. And a slave who thus became a Christian, especially if their master was a Christian, might expect that, well, we're pretty close, so I, I don't have to be under your authority anymore. I'm made free from all these distinctions. And, and so 
I think that, that God offers these instructions because this would be a temptation. Now, a couple of uh, prefaces. I don't think anything about this section justifies slavery. I know people through the years, you go back to history of this country, you go back to pre-Civil War day, and you, see, you would see people that take 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, beginning of verse 18, and say, well, God's, God doesn't condemn slavery here, so slavery must be okay. I, I don't think that this is a tacit approval of slavery. What God does for all of us is He takes us where we are and says, this is the way you can be godly where you are. Christianity wasn't meant to overthrow the social order of mankind, even if the social order of mankind is all messed up. That is going to happen in eternity. Everything's going to be right. But the point of Christianity was to show the kingdom of the king and the idea of eternal life in that kingdom. And so God didn't send Jesus in order to make sure we had you know, just the ideal government this is not an approval or a justification of slavery. It is a focus upon what a person in this circumstance needs to understand about their responsibility. And what God's asking, and actually in all these circumstances, is, you know, you may be, you may be in, an oppressive, in an oppressive life, but you need to trust me. Because this life's going to be temporary and it's going to be short-lived and you, you know, let's prepare ourselves for eternity. And so, what, what does he say here? Uh, well, uh, he says the same thing that he said in regards to civil government. Servants, be submissive to your masters. And you think, well, wait a minute, I'm not a slave, so how does this apply to me? How many of you have a job? Okay. How many of you in your job have a boss? Okay. Uh, I, I start to say, how many of your bosses? Because this, this probably has some implications for you as well. But, but the reality is we live in a world that has social and economic organization where we find ourselves under authority that may well be abused. And as Americans, we don't deal with that very well. And in fact, because we have freedoms, in some ways, uh, we're freed from some of this because we can just drag up and say, I don't have to put up with this. But I will tell you the thing to remember about this section. This section grows out of we're strangers and sojourners and we're showing people the praises of God. And sometimes a bad situation offers more opportunity to show the praises of God than walking out of that situation and going finding a better one. And we don't think that way very often, do we? But I do think that that's worth appreciating. And so the instruction is very straightforward. Be submissive to your masters. And maybe we would say, be submissive to your boss. Yeah, but he's a bad man. Well, uh, we got some bad men in government. He told us to be submissive to them. Be submissive. Uh, he says, with all fear. Fear of whom? Fear of God. Doing good, not only to the good and gentle, but to the harsh. I've got a great boss, and so I'm submissive. But I don't have a great boss, so I don't, I, I just, I'm a rebellious person. And I guarantee you, you get the, you get the reputation in your job. Yeah, he, he just can't stand the boss, and he's just always griping and complaining. You try that and then tell somebody, hey, we're having a gospel meeting, so we would love for you to come. And, and, the, and you know what the reaction is? You mean you want me to be like you? And we don't think that way. And that's what Peter's challenging us to do. Think this way. Think about the opportunities you have as a child of God to do good and show forth the praises of God. And, and so, you know, you, you, you show God's fear, 
not only to the good and gentle, but to the harsh. This is commendable because of conscience towards God one endures grief. That's who we need to be pleasing. Not, not always ourselves, not always making it easy on ourselves. What can I do for God today? Because that's what life is to be about. What can I do for God today? Uh, what credit is it if you're beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? You know, I doubt very seriously any of you have been beaten by your boss, especially if your boss is your dad, right? Uh, you've probably been beaten by your boss, but <laughs> for different reasons altogether. Um, but, you know, I mean, we look at this and God's telling somebody who's getting beaten, take it. Especially if you're getting beaten and you're doing a good job. It's not, you don't deserve it. And our argument is, hey, I don't have to put up with this. I don't deserve this kind of treatment. I'm leaving. You think these slaves deserve the kind of treatment they got? And yet what God's telling them is, if you're beaten for your faults uh, and, and, and you take it patiently, you know, what does that show? But, but if you're... If you're beaten for good things, if you're doing your job right and you're suffering, what is that? God thinks that's commendable. Why? Because it shows people your trust is in God. That you're living for something more than a better job and how you are treated because you're an American and you've got rights and you shouldn't have to put up with this mess. And, and how much good could we do in the world if we started thinking this way, folks? How many people could we influence day in and day out on the job if we had the right attitude about our work and who we are and who we're really pleasing? And I think that's where the application comes. And, and, and he uses Jesus as an example. You know, to this you were called because Christ suffered. Suffered for who? He suffered for us. You know, we're the ones that didn't deserve what he did, and yet he took punishment that he didn't deserve when he was good. Verse 22, he committed no sin. He was not devious. He did not revile in return. He, he, he did not threaten when he suffered. He committed himself to God. And, and, and the reason that Peter says that is that's the way you and I need to be. And, and I think everybody relates to this at some point. I, I, I had a boss years ago when I was in college that wanted to fire me because I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't drive a truck that was improperly loaded. And buddy, he grabbed me by the nape of the neck and dragged me down to the supervisor. And, uh, you know, I, I could have very easily bowed up, said, you're not going to treat me this way. Uh, I was too scared to lose my job, to be honest with you. I wish I could say I, I, I reacted properly because I was a child of God. I use that illustration because we've all been there in one way or another. Do you think about who you are relative to God as you're dealing with your work and dealing with jobs and dealing with people that, that are unreasonable in the way that they treat you? Jesus did the same thing. So, good works, be submissive. And, and finally, to chapter 3, uh, we, we talk about this one more than the rest of this. Understandably so. Our marriages, uh, our, our homes are, are significant relationships, and we have seen a destruction of such in our economy. And, but I do think because marriage has taken such a hit in our world, and divorce is so prominent and so prevalent and so accepted, that sometimes we miss this teaching. Uh, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some don't obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. Uh, 
that's not typically the way we do things anymore. But I'll tell you what's happened in our world. You, you see more and more people that probably were like people in Peter's day where you had people that are trying to do right married to people who aren't trying to do right. And that presents a particular problem, especially for women, because no matter what the, the world around us says, no matter what the culture says, God still designed marriage to operate in a particular way. One is the leader, one is the help. And you've got to have both of them. That, makes no, that doesn't make the man more important than the woman. It doesn't make the woman more important than the man. But, but it is the way that God designed it to be and if, if we're going to show the world the proper order that God instituted in this world, we're going to have to live this. Don't be ashamed in your relationship to have headship and service. And, and people go, man, that's, that's outdated. Yeah, dates all the way back to the beginning. It is a very old relationship. And it is the way God designed things to be. And ideally, it is the way things work best. Not that it can be abused, but that that is the role that God has assigned to us. And so with that in mind, just because you're in a relationship, especially ladies, where your husband doesn't appreciate your faith, who doesn't appreciate what you're trying to do, doesn't appreciate the way you're trying to raise your kids, doesn't appreciate the moral standings that you've chosen, that's, that's not a reason for divorce. Uh, I hear people make that argument from time to time. Well, my husband is not supportive of me, so I think I've got the right to put him away. Not for that you don't. Not according to the Scriptures. Not according to Jesus in Matthew 5 or Matthew 19. In fact, your responsibility is even harder than that. Your responsibility is to be submissive and do good in the hopes that when he sees the way you act, even though he doesn't act right, it's going to cause him to stop and think why it is that this woman can be chaste in her conduct, can be fearful of God, who, who, who can be an exceptionally beautiful woman, but there's more to life for her than, than the, the hair and the gold and the clothes. But this is a person who, whose real beauty is her gentle and quiet spirit because that's precious to God. How much do you work on that, ladies? Because our society does not encourage this. But what God says is, you, you know, you may well win a soul by acting this way instead of just conforming to what the world says. You go get a Hallmark card. Congratulations on your divorce. You deserve it. You, you know, we probably need more cards that say congratulations on sticking it out and being a godly woman in a hard circumstance. Because you hear stories. I, I heard a story this week about a man that obeyed the gospel because his wife was faithful and he was a drunkard and he was abusive. And, and, and she just towed the line. And by the time the story was over, he's a very faithful child of God now, put away all of his... But it took a long time. But it was the prototypical illustration of 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter says this, this is the way holy women have lived. By the way, uh, Tracy and I laugh about this pretty regularly. Uh, I always remind her that Sarah called Abraham Lord. And uh, 
She doesn't like that at all, okay? Just for the record. So you can tell her I said that, and, uh, you know, yes, Lord. That's, that, that, that's what, what, what do you say? Yes, Lord. And then she does what she wants to do. Uh, I, I, let's finish with this verse. Go to verse 7 because it's easy to cut this off. Uh, husbands likewise. I don't want you to think about this for a second. We don't talk about this possibility. It seems to me very possible that you also have here the likewise referring to husbands dealing with wives who are not submissive, not Christians, not living the way that they should. And, and that's not unheard of in our day and age either, especially given our cultural propensity to, to change gender roles. Uh, and, and so, husbands, how are we supposed to be? Uh, we're, we're still supposed to dwell with them with understanding. We're still supposed to give honor. You say, but my, my wife is not a Christian and she's, she, she, she is not living according to the standard God set before us. How are you treating her? Are you still treating her with understanding and honor? Are you trying to think about the fact that being in, in her role is not an easy thing? It requires a lot of self-discipline. It requires a lot of humility. It requires a lot of self-sacrifice. Are you thinking about that? Are you giving honor to her? Do you appreciate this weaker vessel idea, which is not emotional or mental or academic? It, it just describes the fact that men are made stronger. And I think predominantly physically is what he means here. And, and, but do you stop and think about life from the perspective of your spouse? I don't think we do that often, and I think that's what he's saying. As to the weaker vessel, being heirs together, uh, obviously in the circumstance. He, he is embracing the idea of, of being Christians together. One of the challenges of, of headship, men, is looking out for the spiritual well-being of your wife. You know, it, it's not just, hey, I, I bring home the bacon, Okay. You know, I make sure we got, a, we got the bills are paid and uh, you, you don't have to worry about these things. I've taken care of you. Not if you're not taking care of her spiritually, you're not taking care of her. And, and so that's something that, that we need to think about, that, that your prayers may not be hindered, that, that, that you stand before God in a right relationship where as a righteous man, He's listening to you. Now, as I said when we started this, uh, and, and we'll, we'll wrap this up, none of this is hard. You can go read this for yourself and, there, and there's, there's not going to be any part of it that you can't get. The, the question is, are, are we going to do this? Because this is not the way our culture tells us to live. And as Christians, we really need to decide where our standards are going to be. Are we going to be the children of God? Are we just going to be Americans who go to church? Because those are not the same thing. And so I offer you that, and I would leave you by looking at verse 8. And Peter does this throughout the letter, it seems to me. He kind of ties sections together with a little simple admonition. And very often it's an admonition toward uh, unity and proper attitudes, and he does so here. Finally, all of you be of one mind. Why? Because we're all the children of God. All of you have compassion for one another. Why? Because you got people that have trouble with the government. You got slaves over here that are dealing with hard circumstances. You got women over here whose husbands aren't Christians and life is hard for them. <coughs> so have some compassion for one another. Help one another in these circumstances. Love as brothers. 
Did you notice, and I, I, if we had the time, if we were doing this as a Bible class and it was open-ended, I would have spent some time in verse 17. Right in the middle of honor all people and honor the king and honor God, he says, love the brethren. Why do you think he has to do that? Well, because some of the brethren I'm not going to agree with about how to deal with, with the government. I still have to love them. That has to be a priority. And he comes back to that in verse 8. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous. Not evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Remember, we're not the world. We are called to be a blessing so that we might inherit a blessing. And I'm going to tell you, the darker the world gets around us, the more our commitment to these kinds of standards are going to stand out. And it may not change the state of Arkansas. It may not change the city of Little Rock or North Little Rock or Maumelle or Conway or Searcy or Pine Bluff, wherever you live. You, you, you may not see a, a huge change in the government because you adopt these principles and live them out. But you might bring someone to the Lord. Because we have the ideal government. We serve the ideal master. And our spouse, if you look at it from the Ephesians 5 standpoint, is the Son of God. And that's appealing to people living in this world with all the garbage that's in it. So, let's use this. Let's adopt it. Uh, hopefully we can make the world better. Thanks for your attention. Sorry for the time. It's a long section. Uh, we'll, we'll continue right where we left off tomorrow, and we'll, we'll look at all the way into the uh, end of chapter 4. So, uh, make sure you've read that if you're going to be here tomorrow night. Thanks for your attention. If you're subject to the invitation tonight, we could help you. We invite your response while we stand in.